Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We've been uh, teaching a series on the name of Jesus, coming at it from a little different angle. And we want to continue along those lines today, this morning. I want to use Romans chapter 5 and verse 17 as the beginning point. It's um, uh, Paul is speaking by the Holy Ghost and says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one. Now, um, real quickly, some of you are still turning and finding the opening in your, in your Bible. So let me say that just uh, real quickly for a point of clarification. There are four words in the Greek language that are translated if. The one that's used most often by Paul is this one. And it, it really doesn't mean if, it means since. It means if in the sense of if something, then something else. But it's, uh, it's even more demonstrative. It's if something is true and we know that it is, then the other is true. So that's what he's saying here. So he sa- says, for if, literally for since, by one man's sin, Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, for since by one man's sin or de- uh, offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, we've been teaching a subject uh, or a series on the, uh, the name of Jesus. And uh, really, to get the most out of what I'm going to say this morning, you need to hear some of the things that went before. We've been uh, talking a, a lot about uh, how the, the church uses the name of Jesus in a religious sense, but not in a... Um, knowledgeable sense I, I, I don't I hope that's the best way to say that what I mean by that is so many times we use the name of Jesus just to, to end our prayer to let God knows we're about to close uh, and uh, and we use it kind of like a good luck charm it's like a, a, a rabbit's foot uh, you don't see the rabbit's foot rabbit's feet much anymore but in when I was a kid you know people would carry around lucky rabbit's feet and when they wanted something to, to work out they'd rub those things I, I have no idea why that ever came about but nevertheless that was the case and um uh and some it seems to me that so many times people use the name of jesus kind of in the same way it's like when we use the name of jesus we're letting god know that we know that this is supposed to work but so few people that even use it in prayer really have confidence that it means anything that very often most often there is no result well the Bible speaks of many things regarding the name of Jesus that's a whole lot different than the way that we use it. For example, the Bible doesn't say just use the name of Jesus. It says live in the name of Jesus. It says whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Are we supposed to walk around all day long and everything we say, close it up by saying in the name of Jesus? Are we supposed to go to work uh, and, and use the name of Jesus in, in whatever forms we fill out and stuff like that? Well, that wouldn't make sense. Well, what is he saying? The Bible refers to the name of Jesus as being uh, the, the means whereby we have been made one with the Father. In other words, God doesn't see you in any way other than in the name of Jesus. We see ourselves apart from Jesus. We see Jesus as a separate entity, you know, the one that brought us salvation. But God doesn't see you that way. He doesn't see you and see Jesus beside you. He sees you in Jesus. And that's the only way that he can see you. Otherwise, he'd see your sin. And the Bible says that he doesn't, which means he has to see you in Christ Jesus. We saw many, uh, many examples, and we may look at some more this morning, of uh, where the disciples in the early days of the church did great signs and wonders and never spoke the name of Jesus. 
Well, if the power is in the name of Jesus, how were they able to cast out devils without ever using Jesus' name? Now, sometimes they did, but not in every case. For example, one, uh, one uh, instance in uh, um, uh, Acts chapter 9, Peter comes upon a man that's crippled named Aeneas, and he, Peter just simply says, Aeneas, Jesus, Jesus made you whole. He didn't use the name of Jesus. Other places it says that, that people were healed by Peter's shadow. He's not standing there stopping and, and preaching to them or using the name of Jesus as the shadow goes across and heals the sick. So how is this name of Jesus supposed to be used if it's something that, that, uh, is, uh, that, that works of God aren't accomplished unless we hear the magic phrase in the name of Jesus? It's got to mean something more than that. Now, in the Bible, in the New Testament... There are more than 130 times where the phrase in Christ, in him, in whom, by whom, and so forth is used, talking about being in Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible also speaks of being in the name of Jesus. Being in Christ means to be in the name of Jesus. Here in uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 17, it's talking about by whom, by Jesus Christ. For since by one man's offense, one man's sin, Adam's sin in the garden, death reigned. In other words, one action brought the reign of death. Please understand, folks, how fragile spiritual death is. One action brought it onto the scene and gave it dominion. Well, Paul is saying, since that's true, how much more true is it that by one man's redemption, one man's act of redemption, Jesus' work on the cross, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, which is given to us through Jesus' sacrifice, much more the person that receives that shall reign in life by Jesus Christ. In other words, in the name of Jesus. See, if you think about it, the whole New Testament, over, as I said, over 130 times, it says by him, in, who, in him, by whom, and so forth. Different, uh, different phrases are used, but it all means the same thing. Everything about the New Testament is to tell you who you are in Christ. It's all about the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Now, let me give you an example of that, uh, to, for, especially for those who weren't with us. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 tells us about Philip, who was one of the deacons in the church. He would later become an evangelist. But at this point in time, he's still a deacon or a helper in the church. Just means a layman, means he's not called yet to the ministry. And it says in uh, verse 5, beginning in verse 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Now, what do we understand that that phrase means? He preached Christ unto them. Well, we would say it's something like he preached salvation. He told people about Jesus being raised from the dead so they could get saved. We would understand that's what that means, right? Well, we'd be right. That's exactly what he did. He preached Christ unto them. But that's not just what he did. He didn't just tell them. He showed them something. It says in verse 6, And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Now, he's not called to the ministry. He is later on. He's called Philip the Evangelist later on in the book of Acts. But at this point, he's still a layman in the church. In other words, he's just like you. See, so many times people think that signs and wonders and miracles belong to those that have a special call to the ministry. But that's the one thing I want you to see this morning is that it belongs to those who are in the name of Jesus. See, somebody that's called to the ministry doesn't have any more right to the name of Jesus than you do. They're no more in Christ than you are. Brother Hagin played a very important role in my life and he was the foremost prophet on the earth when he was here. And I saw him do some, uh, well, I, uh, 
People don't like me to say it that way. I saw God do some miraculous things to him. I mean, just some spectacular things. People raised up stuff up here that wasn't there before. I, 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 I saw some fantastic things. But he didn't have any more of the name of Jesus than I do or that you do. There may have been things that God called him to do and, and used him for for a specific, specific point in time for a specific purpose. But he's not more in Christ than you are. Man, that was hard for me to understand. Because I looked at it and said, well, if God's using him like that, he must really be something. Well, he is something. He's in Christ. And whether you know it or not, whether you accept it or not, that makes you something. But we look at it differently. We see people being used of God in miraculous ways or in, uh, in great ways, and we think, wow, they must have something I don't have. We assume that they're more mature than everybody else. We assume that everything they say and everything that they do is right because God is using them in a great way. But how many times have we seen those same people that God has used in a great way fall to some kind of sin and take a lot of people with them? They're not infallible. Nobody is. That's why the Bible says you'll know a tree by the fruit that it produces, not the miracles that it performs. Look at a person's life. Fruit is character. So here Philip preached Christ and he did miracles. And it tells which ones he did. It says, for unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many. Notice it does not say came out of all that were possessed. See, again, we get the idea that if God's going to use somebody, it just works in every situation for everybody around. Not so with Philip. Unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many that were possessed with, with them and many, not all, taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. So it tells us specifically, which indicates that there were certain things that God seemed to use Philip in specifically in, uh, as he began to preach Christ, which was the forerunner of his ministry call later on because he's identified as an evangelist. But notice it doesn't say any blind eyes were opened. Why not? Because apparently that's not how God used him. And there was great joy. Verse 8. And there was great joy in that city. Now skip with me over to verse 12. Speaking of the people in the city. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God. In the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized both men and women. So we know now what preach Christ means. He preached two things. He preached things concerning the kingdom of God. And he preached the name of Jesus. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles that were at Jerusalem heard that the Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Notice verse 14, or, I'm sorry, verse 16. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. It says they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. And so they were baptized. You need to know something, folks. There are nine different times in the book of Acts where the Bible speaks of baptism. Eleven if you, if you include baptism of the Holy Ghost. Of those nine times that speak of baptism outside of the Holy Ghost, only three of them are identified with water. So often when we look at baptism, we see the word baptism because we think from a Western mentality, we think water baptism because it's been such an issue in the church. We think baptism always means water. It doesn't. 
We don't know if these folks that were baptized in water or not. They may have been, but we don't know for sure. Well, what do we know about them? We know that they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Notice again, verse uh, 16. It says, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, what do we know about them? We know that they were baptized from verse 12. They were baptized both men and women. But again, we assume that that means water baptism, and it doesn't. And then it says in verse 14, the apostles which were at Samaria heard that Samaria, I'm sorry, the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Notice what he calls them being baptized. They received the word of God. What does it mean? It means they were saved. Now, they might or might not have been baptized in water. We don't know. But what the baptism is talking about here is that they were baptized into the name of Jesus. And notice how it refers to it. For they were only baptized in the name of Jesus. So, folks, with this understanding, we have to conclude that every time the Bible talks about salvation, it means baptized in the name of Jesus. See, so many times people have gone through the, the, in the church world, people have taken scriptures like this and they've taken those nine different times in the, in, the new, uh, in the book of Acts where it talks about baptism and they've tried to create a baptismal formula, a water baptismal formula. Some people have said, well, of all the times that it speaks of being baptized, it says they were baptized in the name of Jesus. So some people try to create a water baptismal formula to baptize people in the name of Jesus. But if that were the case, if it was a baptismal formula, a water baptismal formula, then the same words would be used every time, and they're not. Sometimes it just refers to being baptized in the Lord. So what is it? It's talking about the baptism. Being baptized in the name of Jesus means to be saved. The word baptized means to set or to place into. So to be baptized in the name of Jesus means you're placed in the name of Jesus. That means you're placed in the family of God. That means you're placed into salvation. Can you see that? So when the Bible talks about doing all in the name of Jesus, it means doing all according to the new birth, the new life we've received in Christ through salvation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Well, in Christ means in the name of Jesus. Being baptized in the name of Jesus. So we could rightly change or interchange some of the wording there in that verse of scripture. For if any man is baptized in the name of Jesus, he's a new creature. So the name of Jesus does not just mean some good luck charm. That we're supposed to use on occasion when we really, 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 really want God to hear us. Now the fact is if you're in Christ. How many of you are in Christ? You've been born again. That means you're living in the name of Jesus. Paul said, the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. What does that mean? He's saying, my life's not my own. The life that I have is the life that I received when I made Jesus the Lord of my life. My personal Lord and Savior. In other words, the life that I live is in the name of Jesus. These are all interchangeable terms. Now, with that in mind, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. They believed Philip, preaching the uh, things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. They were baptized, both men and women, baptized into the name of Jesus. Maybe they were baptized in water. Later on in the same chapter, Philip baptizes another guy in water, where it talks about baptism specifically referring to water. He may have baptized these people in water too. We don't know. But if, it, if he did, that just means that he took place in a church form or a church ritual 
that is an outward show of something that's already done on the inside. In other words, if they were baptized in water, it wouldn't do any good unless they were baptized in the name of Jesus or saved first. Because going into the water doesn't save anybody. If going into water saved saved people, then all we'd have to do is take a bath or go swimming. We wouldn't need a Savior. I know that sounds silly, but that's the truth. Water doesn't save anybody. If you haven't made the choice of Jesus as being your Lord and Savior and believe that God has raised him from the dead, then it wouldn't matter how many times you go in the water or how long you stayed there. The church has taken such a a foolish position on water baptism. It's a foolish position, and they fought wars over it. And it's not talking about water baptism at all. It's talking about being baptized or placed in the family of God. Now, with that in mind, turn with me over to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. They they believed, and they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Notice what it says in John chapter 14. Jesus is talking to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, just before he goes to the cross. I want you to notice verse 12. Let me ask the same question. How many of you believe in the name of Jesus? You've been baptized into Christ. Okay. Verse 12 means it belongs to you then. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, can't believe on Jesus without believing on his name. That's what this means. Believing on Jesus or believing on the name of Jesus, he literally means people that are saved. These signs shall follow those that are saved, those that are baptized into the name of Jesus, placed into the family of God. He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Notice he did not say, these signs shall follow those really great ministers. People that attain some high developed spirituality or spiritual growth that none of the rest of us are going to get to. No, he said, he that believeth on me. What is he talking about? Believing on him. The whole point of the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapter of John is Jesus telling the disciples, I'm going to the Father. Well, what's the purpose in him telling telling them he's going to the Father? That they can be saved. They can have the same place with God as he has. They can be united with God. That only comes through salvation. So when he said, he that believeth on me, he's talking about he that believes that I'm the son of God and eventually the end of his sacrificial work to be raised from the dead. Now, some people, when they see this greater works, they'll say, well, see, we're doing the greater works than Jesus because we're getting people saved. Well, I I really hate to argue the point, but didn't Jesus get these guys saved? Doesn't Jesus appear after his resurrection in John chapter 20 and breathe on these guys and say receive the Holy Spirit and their lives changed? And then he tells them wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Ghost is poured out? Well, sure he did. If when Jesus breathed on them in John chapter 20 and said receive ye the Holy Ghost, if they didn't get something, then he lied to them. I don't know about you, but I don't think a, a, a redeemer, our worthy redeemer would be a liar. So the greater works can't be just people getting saved. Don't get me wrong. You say things like that and people take offense. I'm not saying anything against salvation. Let's get as many people saved as we can. But that's not the greater works. Well, what are the greater works, Pastor Mike? I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, since they're not identified, I think we have to leave those unto God. 
But he does say that he'll do the same works. The one that believes, the one that's made Jesus the Lord of his life, will do the same works and even greater works shall be done because Jesus goes to the Father. In other words, because he made a place for us to be in him. Now turn with me over to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. This is Jesus after his resurrection talking to the disciples, verse 15. And he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What do we understand the gospel to be? Jesus crucified and raised from the dead, isn't it? So go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized. Water baptism. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If that means water baptism, that means you can't get saved without water. If that's the truth, then why did Paul write to the church and say, I'm glad I didn't baptize but a couple of you folks? See, they were arguing about water baptism when Paul was still here on the earth. And he said, I'm glad I didn't baptize but a few of you in water. And then he identifies, names three people that he baptized in water. Well, he got cities worth of people saved. Why didn't he baptize them in water? And if Paul didn't know that baptism in water is necessary for salvation, then boy, he sure messed them up. He left them hanging, thinking they're saved, but in a worse state than they were before. It's not talking about water baptism. It says, he that believeth and is baptized, baptized into the name of Jesus. Placed in the name of Jesus or into the family of God, in other words. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. And these signs shall follow them that believe. One uh, translation says, these signs shall follow the believing ones. Believing in what? Well, didn't he just been talking about believing in Jesus? Hadn't he just been talking about believing that Jesus is the risen son of God? The preaching of the gospel? Isn't that what he's talking about? Isn't that the context that he's speaking of? And these signs shall follow them that believe. Them that believe have to be the ones in verse 16. They that believe and are baptized and are saved. In other words, we could say it this way. And these signs shall follow them that are saved. Notice he does not say these signs shall follow those that are really, really special Christians. These signs shall follow those that have a special call of God upon their life. Now, folks, this is what's supposed to follow every believer. These are the things that are supposed to follow every Christian. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Believing in his name, we've already identified. Believing in his name means to be saved. First sign he identifies, they shall cast out devils. First thing he identifies as, the, as a sign of a believer, a sign of somebody that's saved is authority over the devil. Now we're okay with that when we talk about authority over the devil in our own lives. At least some people are okay with that. But really he says it from a standpoint of casting out devils that not only means exercising authority over the devil in your own life but setting other people free too. So these signs shall follow. Jesus said, you know, what did he know? But Jesus said, these signs shall follow those that believe in my name or those that are saved. They'll cast out devils.
He does not say these signs shall follow those that have a devil casting out ministry. This is supposed to belong to every believer. They'll cast out devils. Second thing he mentions is a sign that follows those that are saved is they shall speak with new tongues. Folks, you need to understand something. Jesus never intended for there to be different factions in the church, some that believe in speaking in tongues and some that do not. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and he said, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, get saved and the Holy Ghost will come on you too. Because that was what drew everybody's attention. They heard them speaking with tongues and that's why Peter is preaching to the crowd to begin with. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Jesus was crucified. You folks were a party to it. They were, they were uh, quickened in their heart, pricked in their hearts, and they, said, they cried out and said, well, what shall we do? And, Jesus, and Peter said, repent and, be, uh, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In other words, there's only one hope for you, and that is repent, get saved, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. God never intended it to be different groups. Now, we know that there are. We know that there are those that stand up and say, well, not everybody's going to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Okay, well, should we use Jesus' definition by who should be? Jesus said the ones that are saved. (sighs) Pastor Mike, are you saying I'm not saved if I'm not filled with the Holy Ghost? No, not saying that at all. I'm saying you've made your own doctrine to keep you from being filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, famous preachers say that not everybody's filled with the Holy Ghost. Yeah, that's right. And all we have to refute that is what Jesus said. Poor old us. Left with an unhappy dilemma. What Jesus said things would be like. What Jesus is identifying is the will of God for things to be. We're famous preachers. Folks, do you see how silly this is? And I, I, I know this is a real deal for a lot of people. I get that. But this was never God's plan. God's plan was for believers, every child of God, to have accompanying signs. His plan was for the world to be able to identify who's saved and who's not saved by the way that they live. And the things that follow them. Imagine if it was the way God wanted it to be. Imagine if you didn't have to take some kind of public stand to let people know that you were saved, but really lived in such a way that the supernatural was commonplace. Imagine if your co-workers didn't have to wonder who's saved on the job. Imagine if we looked at political on the political scene and didn't have to wonder who was following God and who wasn't. I don't just mean it campaign season. Where they show up with preachers and other things like that to make everybody think certain things. I mean, what if we were able to look at people's lives and see these signs and really be able to tell? Now, folks, unless I'm reading something out of context here, this is what Jesus is indicating that this is the way God wanted it to be. He said this is the way it should be. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name or them that have been baptized in the name of Jesus or them that are saved. They shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. 
They shall take up serpents. Another reference to authority over the devil, not snake handling. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. Divine protection is another sign that accompanies the, the believing one. And the last one in the list, the last of five, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Notice that Jesus is saying that healing is a sign that should follow every child of God. Not just healing and, and well-being in his own life. That's a given. He's talking about setting other people from setting other people free from sickness and disease. He said that's a sign that ought to follow every believer. Turn back with me to John chapter 14. We've looked at scriptures like uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 17. Much more since uh, death reigned by Adam's sin. Much more those that receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. We've looked at scriptures like that and we've thought, well, there's got to be something more than just being saved. And there is. But it's not something in addition to being saved. It's something that should happen as a result of our salvation and the natural progression of the spiritual growth that follows. In other words, when we see scriptures like that, it means those that are saved and who renew their minds to who they are in Christ. That's really the only difference. Romans chapter 12 talks about be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transformed there really is, is kind of an interesting word because it means metamorphosized. Like a caterpillar creates a, a cocoon and comes out a butterfly. A change in nature. Now, it's not really your nature that's changed. It's your eyes being opened and your mind, through your mind being renewed to who you really are, who that new nature is in you. But the transformation that takes place, the renewing of the mind, is really the key to unlocking this reigning in life by one Jesus Christ because you're already in him. Here's the, here's the sad tragedy. The sad tragedy is the church is in Christ and has access and has the potential for all these greater works that Jesus is talking about. But because their minds are not renewed to who they are and what God's will is for them to do, they walk through life powerless. How many times have we heard people say, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him why he let this happen to me. I want to be around when they do. I want them to say, now, God, why did you let this happen to me? And I want Jesus to turn around and say, why didn't you use the power you had? I said right here, you do the same works that I did in greater works. I said right here, these signs will follow those that believe. He even goes further than that. Did you find John 14 yet? Let's look again at verse 12. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Whenever Jesus is saying, Verily, verily, he's saying, Listen up. This is really the truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, or on my name, literally, he that is saved, he that is made a new creature in Christ Jesus, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Well, we know the last part's true. Jesus went to the Father, right? Notice how that's going to happen. Verse 13. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. Now, the word ask does not mean request. It means to call for or to require. It literally means to make a demand on something. 
when I use that phrase, I always feel like I have to explain it because some people think I'm talking about attitude, that you're demanding something of God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about legal uh, relationship. Jesus is saying we have a legal relationship with God because we're in him. We have a legal relationship with his name. You've got a legal relationship with your bank. You signed some documentation when you opened your checking account at the bank. And when you write a check on the funds you have on deposit in that checking account, you're placing a demand on that account based on the terms of the contract. Now, you don't have to be arrogant about writing a check. See, you say, use the word demand, and so many times people say, oh, the very idea that you're demanding something of God. Well, do you have a bad attitude when you demand something of your bank? Are you being arrogant to demand that the bank pay money that you have on account to whoever you write the check to? Does it have anything to do with attitude whatsoever? None. It's based on a legal relationship. It's based on a contract. Jesus is saying, when you're in me, you're in contract with God. Because you're in union with him, you have a same, the same right to my name that I have to it. Because you're in me. So he says, whatsoever you shall call for or require, whatever you put a demand on in my name, I'll do it. Now this has got to be in connection with the works and the greater works. He hasn't changed subjects. He that believeth on me, or he that is saved, he that's in Christ, here's a part of reigning in life by one Jesus Christ, he that's in me, or he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father, and whatsoever you shall ask or demand in my name, that will I do. You're not making a demand of God. You're making a demand on the power in the name of Jesus. Notice verse 14. If you shall ask, same word ask, demand, call for or require. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now notice verse 13 and 14 again. He said, whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Please notice that the only restriction, the only limits on the name of Jesus is that it brings God glory. That's it. The only limitation, the only criteria that he indicates whatsoever is that what the name is used for, the name of Jesus is used for, is to bring God glory. Keep that in mind. Skip with me over to chapter 15. Verse 7. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Same word ask is in John chapter 14, verse 13. Same word ask, call for, require, demand. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, here's the, here's the only restriction, the only criteria he puts here, here's the requirement, abide in him, that means to be saved, to walk in fellowship within, with him, and secondly, for the word to abide in you. In other words, you've got to be knowledgeable of the word. Why is it important to be knowledgeable of the word? Because the word is God's will. The word is God's will. James wrote and said some people ask and they don't receive because they ask amiss that they might consume it upon their own lust. In other words, they ask contrary to the will of God. 
John said, writing to the church, 1 John chapter 3, John said, we know that if God hear, if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we know we have the answer that we ask for. So the key is to ask according to his will. Well, how do we know what his will is? The word is his will revealed. So you have to abide in the word to know the will of God. Now, some things the word of God will identify specifically is God's will. And other things the word of God will just show you what the character and the nature of God is. For example, the Bible talks about God being a better father than we are to our own children. If you then being natural or human parents know how to be good, good, uh, give good things to your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give good things to them that ask you? So it shows us that God's a good parent. Anything that you would be willing to do for your ch- children because it's good for them, that's, con- that's consistent with the character and the nature of God to do for you. First prayer I ever remember being answered. First time I ever prayed in faith and didn't know what I was doing. I just stumbled up on it. I asked God for a reward. It was a reward for, for uh, related to a basketball uh, season. I asked God for a reward. And finally I came to the place where I talked to him about it a little bit. Didn't know anything about faith. As, like I said, I'm stumbling around in the dark, so to speak. And finally I just said, now, Father, if I was God and you were me and you asked me to do this, I'd do it for you. <laughs> and somehow or another that brought me confidence. That brought me great confidence, and I just said, okay, well, all right, that's it. I, there's nothing more to talk about. And it worked. I found out something about the character and the nature of God. I wish I'd found out about it right then. I wish I'd hung on to those things, but I could let them get away from me. But now looking back at it, I can see some things very clearly. So some things the Bible will tell you specifically is the will of God. Other things the Bible will just show you what the character and the nature of God is that you can rely on. So if you abide in me and my words abide in you, he's talking about fellowship. He's talking about living in and with him and in fellowship with God through his word, growing in the knowledge of his word. You shall ask what you will, what you will, what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Notice it doesn't say you'll ask what God wills. It says you'll ask what you will. See, there are a lot of things in life that God leaves it up to you. There are a lot of things in life that if you're willing to put up with it, God's willing to let you. But right on the other hand, you'll see some other people in the same situations. They're not willing to put up with it and they come out better. I've seen that happen in my own life. And I looked around and said, well, Lord, you did. That's not right. You did better for them than you did for me. And I've had him very clearly say, they asked me for it and you didn't. Well, I'll fix that in a hurry. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Now, please notice verse 8. Herein, in other words, you getting what you ask for, you getting the answers to what you call for or require in the name of Jesus. Herein is my father glorified. Now, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me back up to chapter 14. Verse 13, Jesus said, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name. Call for, require, demand in my name, that that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now in chapter 15, verse 8, he said, Herein, in other words, you asking what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein, in this manner, is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. 
so shall you be my disciples. Please notice that the Bible says that Jesus will do whatever we use his name for, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And John, and he says one chapter later that the thing that glorifies God is you bearing fruit. In other words, answers or results from the use of the name of Jesus, calling for, requiring, or demanding in his name. What I'm trying to get across to you folks is the name of Jesus working glorifies God. We spend so much of our time trying to work God into doing something for us when it's his will all the time for the word to work, for the the name of Jesus to work because that's what brings him glory. Now, we've already seen what some of the signs are that's supposed to follow, some of the things that the name of Jesus is supposed to bring about to glorify God. It's not a complete list, but it does give us an indication of what God wants. He wants you to cast out devils. He wants you to speak with new tongues. He wants you to lay hands on the sick and and they recover. He wants you to have divine protection. He wants you to exercise authority over the devil in every manner. He wants you to do the same works as Jesus and even greater works. And all of that glorifies God. And Jesus said that all of that would follow the one that's saved. Why? Because he's in the name of Jesus. It's not the name of Jesus as some magic phrase. It's that you live in the name of Jesus because your life has been set in him. If this ever dawns on you, you'll go through the roof. I'll read verse 9 to to conclude this part and then skip down another couple of verses. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. In other words, Jesus is saying the reason that the name works, the reason God is glorified when the name works for you, just like he's been glorified, just like I've glorified him by operating according to his will here on the earth, is because God loves you just like he loves me. Verse 16. Uh, back up to verse 14. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Now, he's just talked about the commandment being love one another. He said, you're my friends if you do whatever I command you. The word friends does not mean buddies. It means covenant partners. It means the relationship that God had with Abraham. He said, you are my friends. You're the ones in covenant with me if you do whatever I command you. Henceforth, I call you not servants. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. Same word. For all, my, all things I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Notice what part of this covenant relationship is. Jesus doesn't hold back any information. You remember in Genesis 18, we were talking about it with the baby dedication earlier in the service. God said, shall I hide from Abraham that which I do? Why wouldn't he hide? Why did he reveal it to Abraham? Because he's his covenant partner. He's in covenant relationship with him. Jesus said in verse 16, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and have ordained you. Now that word ordained freaks people out because then, then people start talking about ministers. No, he's ordained you to salvation. He's ordained you to be conformed to the image of Christ. He's talking about salvation, folks. He's not talking about a ministry gift. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. Now, what has he ordained the church to do? Not the ministries, not those that are part of a ministry gift. What has he ordained the church to do? That you should go and bring forth fruit. What kind of fruit? Well, he's just been talking about whatever you use the name of Jesus to do. 
whatever you put a demand on the name of Jesus that brings glory to the Father. To do the same works as Jesus, including casting out devils, laying hands on the sick, speaking with new tongues, and divine protection. You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and I've ordained you. That you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. I like that, folks. Lasting fruit. The name of Jesus should be used. Demands should be placed by believers on the name of Jesus to produce lasting fruit. How hard would it be to reach the world if we acted like Jesus? The Pharisees came to the place where they said after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, wound up saying something to this effect. If we leave him alone, everybody will believe on him. Can't have that. Got to stop him. We got to put him to death. From that moment, they consented together and started plotting about how can we kill this guy. Why? Because if we leave him alone, everybody will believe on him and the Romans will come away and take our place. Or come and take our place away. We've got to get rid of this guy. Because we're, we're toast if we don't do something about him. Why did people believe in Jesus? Because of the works. The very same works that he said we'd do and even greater works we'd do because we were in him. The church is, and and understandably so, but the church has created this mindset or developed this mindset that evangelism is a real hard thing. Evangelism is easy if you're doing the works of Jesus. And the only pictures that we have of those that are evangelists in the New Testament always had signs and wonders that followed them. God never intended for us to go out into the world and try to convince everybody through some philosophy or through some oratory skills that Jesus is the risen Lord and Savior. No, he said, these signs will follow those that believe in my name. So he said, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that, in other words, how's the fruit going to be produced, that whatsoever you shall ask, same word, call for, require, demand, in my name, he may give, ask of the Father in my name, excuse me, whatsoever you shall ask, call for, require, demand, the, of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Luke chapter 16. Verse 23. He said, and in that day, talking about the day following his resurrection, the day of the church, our day. And in that day, you shall ask me nothing. Now, the word ask here is a different word. It's the word that's translated pray. Let me show you where the word is used. Verse 26. And in that day, you shall ask in my name. And I say not to you that I will pray the father for you. That word pray is the same word as the first time the word ask is used in verse 23. So let's substitute it that way for clarity. And in that day you shall pray unto me about nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you whatsoever you shall ask. Here's the same word that's used in John 14 and 15. To call for, require, demand. 
So what's he doing? He's telling us how to use the name of Jesus. And folks, please don't understand this. He's showing us what prayer is supposed to look like. Prayer is not supposed to be asking Jesus for something like they've done for three years when they've been with him in his ministry. For the better part of three years anyway. Prayer is not supposed to be asking God, do this, do this, do this. Prayer is supposed to be using the name of Jesus to get results. Now, in order to use the name of Jesus to get results, you need to know what God's will is to know what results to expect. That's where abiding in the word, abiding in me and the word abiding in you comes in. But that's what prayer is supposed to look like. Now, what if the church's prayers did look like that? Jesus said you'd get results. But instead, what does the modern day church, church's prayer look like? Oh, God, please. God, you got to do something here. There's no belief in the name of Jesus. There's no understanding of who we are in Christ, the new creatures that we've been made in Christ Jesus. And so there's no access or interest in using a name that nobody has faith in. Do you see how far, how far the church has fallen? Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ, and the people believed concerning the name of Jesus. So all they're looking for is somebody... Apparently that wasn't, Peter, or wasn't Philip's ministry. Now they're just looking for somebody to come and bring them this Holy Ghost that Philip told them about. They're already in Christ. Now they're looking for the Holy Ghost. Peter and John come down, lay hands on them, they receive the Holy Ghost. From that moment forward, because of the work of the devil, and you could well understand how the devil would work against the church. The devil does not want the church to find out who they are in Christ. The devil does not want them to find out what belongs to them because they are in Christ. He wants to keep us believing or thinking that there's still some higher thing that we will uh, are trying to attain or should want to attain but probably never will get there. So the supernatural works and signs will follow us too. Or he wants us to think that, oh, you're just a nobody. Now, if you were called to a special ministry like some of the famous people we know and in and, and church history... Those that are few and far between that God used in signs and wonders and miracles. Now, that might be a different thing, but that's not for you. So don't expect to have supernatural works following you. Besides, you know you. When the whole message that Jesus was preaching to the, to the apostles, literally telling them, now look, here's how it's going to work for you when, I, uh, when I'm raised from the dead. And here's how I want it to work for those that you preach to. And in that day, you shall ask me nothing or pray nothing to me. Verily, verily, here's that truly, truly, better listen up. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask, call for, require, demand of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Verse 24, hitherto, up till now, have you asked, called for, demanded, or required anything? Uh, I'm sorry. Hitherto, have you asked nothing, called for, required, or demanded nothing in my name? Ask, same word ask, call for required demand, and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Let me ask you another question, folks, trying to get you to understand what I'm saying. If you woke up every morning knowing that the power of God is going to work through you and set people free, how would you wake up every day? I doubt very seriously you'd be slapping the alarm clock saying, oh, my God, it's Monday.
Life would be an adventure. Folks, I want you to understand something. The miracle life that Jesus showed the disciples was enough to make men leave fishing. (laughs) Most men I know are willing to leave everything else to go fishing. Up till now, you have called for, required nothing in my name. Ask, call for, require, demand, and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Verse 26, at that day, talking about our day, you shall ask, call for, require in my name. I say not. In other words, he's saying, I'm not telling you that I will pray the Father for you. Don't come through me as far as your prayer is concerned. Why? Because you're already in me. You go directly to the Father with your prayer, with your calling for and requiring and demanding in the name of Jesus. You don't need to come through me because God loves you just like he loves me. Doesn't it seem like Jesus is trying to get something across? Let me point something out to you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times in three chapters. He says, use my name. Put a demand on my name. call for require in my name one time he says or well two of the the times he says whatever you call for require in my name i'll do it the rest of the time he said whatever you call for require in my name the father will do so it sounds like god and jesus are both working hand in hand to to uphold and honor his name verily verily jesus said i say unto you he that believeth on me The works that I do shall he do also. I want to make a very simple statement that I really wish our eyes would be open to. I'm trying to get mine open to them more and more about this too. And that is this. God wants you to do miracles. That was the thing that that turned Smith Wigglesworth around. You know the story of Wigglesworth? You've heard me talk about him. He raised 20 some odd people from the dead. There are different numbers. Some say 23, others say 27. You know, I'm not sure about those four different, but. So let's be conservative and say he just raised 23 people from the dead. It's not nearly as impressive a number as 27 though, is it? He knew something about the power of God. You know, you know the thing that he said, thing that he declared, made the difference in him? When he came to understand that God wanted him to do signs and wonders and miracles. Now he did it primarily, the, the way God used him was primarily through Mark eleven twenty four. Jesus said, therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. He came to realize that meant that he could ask anything from God as long as he believed he received it and get it. 
And he started using it for other people. It was very seldom that he used it on his own, in his own life. He started using that for other people. He would pray the prayer of faith over them and believe God that his faith would raise them up. But he said that only became alive to him when he realized God wanted him to do miraculous works. But folks, what else could it mean? Back to where we started, Romans chapter 5. Since by one man's offense, one man's sins, Adam's one sin in the Garden of Eden, opened the door for spiritual death to reign over mankind. Much more, not even in the same ballpark, not even to be compared together, much more, he that receives the gift of the abundance of grace, that's salvation, that's the free gift of salvation, And the gift of righteousness, that's the result of believing in Jesus and being baptized into his name, shall reign in life as one. God wants you to reign in life. God wants you to reign in life. That does not mean he wants you to come out on top. That means God wants you to reign in life. That means not just you being victorious. That means you leading other people and delivering other people into victory for themselves. See, that's what I see in your joy being made full. Ask that you may receive, that your joy may be full. Now, folks, I'm preaching to me as much as I'm preaching to you. Because God's dealing with me about a lot of this kind of stuff. Because I've been just as guilty as the people I'm making fun of. I've used the name of Jesus as a good luck charm in a lot of ways. No more. Never again. I'm starting to see some things. And the result of that is that we've made faith such a hard thing. We've made faith this narrow little strip that you've got to make sure you're just right there. And boy, if you make one small slip, too bad for you. And it's not. Faith is a natural byproduct of being in Christ. It's a natural byproduct of growing in the word because you are in Christ. Jesus said, except you be converted as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of God. How hard is it for kids to believe their parents? You tell little Johnny or little Susie something, they run out to play. They look forward to whenever it's going to be. They don't worry about where our next meal is coming from. They don't come back and check their refrigerator and say, Mom, I'm not sure we've got enough for dinner. They run out and take care of things that belong to them, like fun. They leave the rest of it up to Mom and Daddy. That's the way Jesus said it should be with us. A child's faith is simple. They don't have to work themselves into it. They don't have to try to figure out, am I saying the right thing? It's a simple thing. And it comes because they know their parents are their parents. They know mom and daddy love me. They know mom and daddy's job is to take care of me. They may not have even considered that that's part of their job. They just know that's the way it works. And so their faith is easy. Their faith is natural. Your faith in God should be natural too. Now there are some 
unnatural things to renewing your mind to, to, to getting to that place where you accept things that you don't see to be real. I get that. But it should result in a natural faith. It should result in a natural relationship with God. It should result in the same thing that our kids know, and that is they can ask us anything. Now, with our kids, they may not think that they're going to get everything they ask for, but it doesn't stop them from asking. But Jesus said, as we grow up and as we learn who our Father is, we can ask and expect to receive. Because the only criteria is it needs to glorify God. Well, folks, your needs being met glorifies God. You being healed glorifies God. You helping other people glorifies God. You reigning in life glorifies God. You casting out devils glorifies God. You laying hands on the sick glorifies God. You being divinely protected, walking in divine protection glorifies God. You don't have to talk God into this stuff. He's the one that came up with it. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Jesus said, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we've heard your word. We see that. Now open our eyes to the reality of it. Thank you, Father, for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. That we may accept the truth that we see in front of us. That we may come to realize that since we are in Christ Jesus, the name of Jesus is available to us to place a demand on in every respect. For our own well-being, for our own finances, for our own healing, for the well-being of our family. For the peace of God upon us and our loved ones. And also to set other people free. Open our eyes Lord. That we may see it like we've never seen it before. Even as your word says Lord. You didn't withhold Jesus. And he's the best that there is. How shall you withhold any other good thing from us? course we know that means you won't now heads are bowed and eyes